Hi, everybody. I'm Aaron Solomon, and welcome to the nextlevel.com podcast. We are so lucky on this podcast to have such great guests, and today is absolutely no exception. I'm very, very lucky to have with me. Now, now tell me if I pronounce it wrong. I mean, I've lived in Beijing, so I think I'm going to give it a pretty good shot. Cece Xi. Close? Yeah. Shia. Very close. Eh, okay, sorry, I missed that. CC <laughs> And CC is a, let me see if I get all the things right. You are a big law associate. Mm -hmm. You are That's a correct. Harvard Law School graduate. And this one you may not admit, you are a social media sensation. I don't know about that. I really, <laughs> I really hate it when people call me things like influencer, social media star. And I'm like, I, this is this is a whole new world for me. I just feel like I am a random person who was really bored during the pandemic. And we're going to talk about that for sure. So here's the thing, you know, and again, I've got a law degree. So as two people with law degrees, we're just going to actually do the analysis. We're going to look at the metrics on TikTok, which I love, by the way, TikTok is fantastic. We're going to talk about that in a sec. You've got 200,000 followers and you've got 5 million likes. I mean, that's an influencer by any way that you define a metric, whether you like the tag or not. You sound like my mom trying to tell me that I'm doing great, honey. So I, I appreciate that. Well, you're very welcome. And it's funny because I first heard of you when you did a piece on social media that became, I guess, by no other definition viral. And it was you talking about the billable hour. And I definitely want to talk about the billable hour. But one thing that I want to ask you first is, are you surprised at what happened that you are so well known among certain circles in social media from your TikTok? Yeah, it's definitely is a surprise. Um, like I mentioned, I kind of just stumbled upon TikTok during the pandemic because we were all home and uh, my birthday came around. It was a pandemic birthday, so nice. I didn't know what else to do. And I was like, I want to make this day a little bit special. So I am going to make a TikTok. That's going to be my birthday present to myself to set the day apart. And I was actually pretty surprised by uh, how interested people were in just the ins and outs of my life. Uh, even more so how much I work. I think that's something that there's always so much media around how much lawyers work. People complain about it a lot. You hear about it a lot in law school as well, but you don't, until you get there, you don't really understand. And I remember being in law school, hearing two L's and three L's talk about like, oh, billing two hours, billing five hours, 10 hours. And I just had no conception. And I think that curiosity is kind of driving um, the success of my TikTok is that people want to know what being a lawyer is really like. So for you to become proficient at TikTok, it was just about being open and honest. Yeah, I think the beauty of TikTok versus I think other platforms is that it's a lot more about authenticity and being able to say something that's relatable, being genuine. Whereas I think for Instagram, I could never get into it because it was always about putting this like best picture of yourself, this like perfect picture of yourself and your abilities. And I, and this is definitely something I have to work on even as an attorney, I am very bad at tooting my own horn. So the whole Instagram world, I like did not want to talk about my accomplishments. I didn't want to talk about, oh, this awesome picture I took. Whereas TikTok kind of allows me to talk about, hey, like this is what billing 55 hour a week looks like. This is, this is, you know, I worked this much, but I only build um, in terms of client work this much. And I, I feel comfortable talking about that. And I didn't feel like I was fronting or anything. 
So let's let's just get into a discussion about the billable hour because I would say that when I think back, at least to the past decade, about issues that keep coming up both in the mainstream legal perfection, perfection. I said, I like I said perfection, which is kind of maybe an ironic slip of the tongue, but nonetheless, the mainstream legal profession as well as legal innovators, the billable hour comes up and up. And my partner in a watch company that, that we have has his own law firm and they don't do billable hour. They just do fixed fee kind of stuff. So it's something that I've talked about for years and years and years. Now, your generation could totally change the billable hour. So I guess the hard question is, is your generation gonna change the billable hour? And then let's go from there. Yeah, so I certainly, even in the law firm setting, we've seen a lot of clients ask for alternative fee arrangements more, just because I think the whole idea of the billable hour is potentially not quite matching up to how we think of work nowadays, about how we think about delivering value, about how we think about our own time. Um, I think even for training purposes, one of the most frustrating things I remember as a junior associate was they would tell me, hey, do this. Don't take too long, though. But when you're training, you it, it takes you three times, five times as long to do any one assignment. And I would just be so anxious all the time about was I spending too long instead of focusing on potentially taking all the time I need to truly study and understand something. And I think that's one of the biggest shifts between going to law school where you just have infinite time to get something right. You have, If you have a memo, you just have infinite time to work on it. And that's just not true in the law firm setting. And that's not saying that efficiency isn't good because efficiency is definitely good, but the billable hour also is punishes efficiency sometimes too, um, because you get different feedback and uh, guidance from all over. They say, you know, you should do this, but not too much, but also don't do too little. And I think that just ends up being very confusing in terms of training and is a bit more confusing as well for clients nowadays who are much more results driven, deliverable driven. Um, and I think we've seen a shift in how clients have been asking for certain work product and how uh, fee arrangements are occurring. So I definitely think that there, uh, I would like to see the change um, and it's, it's we'll, we'll see where it goes. It's funny because when I graduated law school back in 1995, so it's so long ago, it doesn't feel like it's that long ago, but it was very, very long ago. I remember in my law school class, I didn't know anybody who used email back then. That goes to show how long it was. But when I graduated, the whole idea of billable hours was you would stand out in the firm if you could build the most hours. So bill more than the associates and bill more than the partners. And yeah, if they needed to discount the amount of hours you actually put in. So it was literally the least efficient thing possible because if it was two hours of library research and you could find a way to be in that library for four hours, great. Then you were seen as being better in the craft. But we would never use a term like value back in 1995, but the fact that you're understanding things about like a value proposition and even about fitting a lawyer's services to the needs of the client really goes to show how far the profession has come over you know, a few decades. Definitely, I think that's one of the most interesting things about the legal profession is that it has kind of evolved throughout a long time. Like I remember talking to a partner who said that when she was an attorney, they ran red lines by copying 
um, by just taking a pen and ruler and striking everything out, comparing it manually. And yeah. I, I can see that you could spend 12 hours making one red line. And now we have these document comparison uh, software that just does it in two seconds. So the nature of what the legal profession is changing. And I think increasingly now you only, you not only have to be legally minded, but you have to be business minded and understand the business aspects of running a business. And even going forward a little, I think this is what TikTok really resonated with me is that going forward, I think that lawyers will need to take on a more marketing angle as well. Um, increasingly, we are living in a social media age in a 24 seven news cycle age, and being able to harness uh, marketing and business and law is very powerful. Listen, you are absolutely preaching to the head of the choir because I work with lawyers every single day on marketing. I do webinars on why social media is important for law firms. And when I talk about things like TikTok or using Instagram Reels, the expression on people's faces is, is, is really remarkable. Why would I ever possibly do that? And why would I share anything about my quote unquote private life to people? But I think that that, and I'm very curious about your opinion on this. I think the delineation between our professional lives and the rest of our lives is starting to fade, especially in the past year since the pandemic. What's your view on that? I think in general, we are accepting more that we are complete people. When we go to work, we don't leave our private selves behind. We don't leave our home lives behind. We don't leave who we are outside of work behind. And I think there was a time where you really try to suppress the rest of your life in order to do work, in order to build those hours. But increasingly, we have seen and heard stories from the legal profession that it's not mentally healthy for lawyers to do that. The legal profession in particular has a lot of mental health issues, has a lot of substance abuse issues. And I think in conjunction with recognizing wellness and mental health and realizing that when we bring ourselves to work, we're bringing all of us, um, it's leading to greater conversations about who we are outside of work as well. And I think that connection actually even helps with client development um, between associates and partners, it helps that relationship because at the end of the day, you can do work, but we are people and we connect with others as people, not you wrote a great email. That's a great point. And I, I really personally perceive that in the past year, that authenticity has become so much more important, not just in the legal profession. I think that people are expect expecting of all brands whether they're consumer brands or they're people offering professional services, that there is this authenticity and there's also empathy. And I just think that for a lot of lawyers who spent their entire career not having to consciously focus on being empathetic or being authentic, this is a real paradigm shift for them. In your observation, how do you think that people are gonna deal with it? I think it's gonna kind of go one of two ways. You're gonna have the people who are the traditionalists who will push back against any sort of change. Um, and we, we see this in all professions, right? It's not just the legal profession. I once went to a doctor who didn't want to learn how to input notes in a computer. So he told me when they make me do notes in a computer, that's when I'd retire. Um, so there will definitely be those individuals in the profession. But I also think, uh, 
there will be the other half, which is people adapting and realizing that in order to kind of move in this new paradigm that you mentioned, trust and good judgment is kind of the biggest currency. It's not just uh, do you trust them to do good work, but do you trust them as human beings? Do you trust their judgment both in and outside of work? Because that ends up translating to so many different realms. And I think one of the, we, we've seen a lot of instances in current media where you have really powerful people who then get exposed as having done really, really problematic things um, behind the scenes. And we as a society are kind of moving to realize that no matter how good, how great someone's work is otherwise, it is still really important to consider who they are behind the curtain. So then imagine, I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing mentally for this interview. <laughs> imagine that you decided in a few years, you know what, maybe big law isn't for you and you'd like to make a difference in the next generation of lawyers. So let's say you decided to go back to law school and you were charged with building a program that would build that next generation and would train that next generation of lawyers. So with everything that you've talked about, getting people to understand value, getting people to be empathetic and show so much of them, what do you think is missing in the way that law schools are training people today because you're a fairly recent product of that, obviously with one of the best, if not the best law school in the world, and you come out and then you're dealing with the reality of being a big law associate in New York. What would you change if a law school, let's even, let's say it wasn't a top 10 law school. Let's say it was a law school that was like top 30, but they said, we're gonna put some serious money behind you building a program that can actually change the profession, write your own ticket. That could happen, by the way. If you can become a TikTok star, that could happen as well. <laughs> so what would you do given that kind of power and influence over the profession? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because even I have friends who are teachers and my partner works in mental health policy, um, okay. sometimes in the school setting. And I think even in the time since I've been in elementary school, middle school, we see a shift towards social emotional learning in the classroom. Um, being able to teach kids skills to recognize their own emotions, figure out how to deal with it, um, the social elements of how they're feeling as well. And I think in law school, Harvard did have a negotiation program that I had heard was pretty great and I didn't end up taking it until my um, last year and it was, it was a different type of curriculum that I thought was so helpful and so unlike any of the other traditional black law letter classes, um, even unlike the like theoretical legal philosophy classes that were there. It was so much more practical and about thinking about how you feel in certain situations, how the other person that you're negotiating with and negotiating against might be feeling. And really delving into that, I thought was so great and so helpful in terms of being able to practice empathy and not only practice empathy, but check with the other person that you're negotiating against, that you're on, on your team. Because oftentimes, really apart from a school setting, we're making guesses in the dark as to what other people are feeling, what they're thinking, what they actually want. And being able to do it in an academic setting, I think, means that you're able to get real-time feedback and hone the skill because empathy is a skill like anything else. And you know, we do so much legal writing, we do like legal research, but we don't do any empathy negotiation skills as a core, even though it's becoming so much more of lawyering. So you're gonna love this. 
before my first year of law school, so the summer before the 1L year, our entire training on empathy and understanding clients was we were given a book called Getting to Yes. Evidently, it was a hugely popular tome back in the day. And so I expected that, you know, we were asked to study this. So we read Getting to Yes. It was This book was never brought up in three years of law school. I think they felt that they were at least alleviating themselves of some responsibility, giving us a paperback book on negotiation. So we've, again, come a very, very long way. I think to change topic for a second, one, and I, I really enjoy your posts on TikTok. One of the posts that I thought was the most powerful was the post that you did on Black Lives Matter, where you talked about you know, just the idea of posting a black circle and that a black square, and that itself isn't really what it's all about. What it's about is for daily action and daily allyship. So instead of taking one day a year where we recognize social justice as people with legal degrees, um, it's really about that activism being kind of a day in and day out thing. So how does this affect how you're dealing with people in a firm, how you're dealing with clients and the kinds of things that you see and how you react to them day in and day out? Because it is such a critical issue, social justice as well as access to justice. Definitely. And yeah, I think you're referring to actually one of my Instagram posts. Oh, sorry, um, one of your Instagram posts. Apologies. <laughs> No, no, I'm just like, people are going to look at my TikTok and be like, she didn't say anything. What is she talking about? I'm trying not to get canceled here. I've seen okay, it good. and I am scared. Um, but yeah, I think what really struck me, especially during last summer when the BLM protests were happening, was that there, I, I felt such a paralysis about wanting to do so many things, but not knowing what to do and not knowing where my efforts would be best channeled. I have been really blessed to be um, at a firm that's been really supportive and vocal about BLM as well. And during that period, um, the foundation matching donations to certain groups. Um, and I felt, I struggled with this idea of I'm blessed to have a really good salary. So of course, donating is something I should be doing, but what else should I be doing beyond that? What can I use my legal skills to do? And of course, not giving legal advice, not taking on clients and stuff like that. But I realized that one of the best things you can do and what I love about TikTok and seeing all the Gen Z lawyers on there, the aspiring lawyers, is that they really want to make a change in a way that I think when I went to law school, people didn't want to make a change. They didn't want to challenge the system. They didn't want to make, create waves really. They just wanted to mostly work in tech because when I was in college and beyond, tech was like the halcyon. Tech was, uh, we, we worshiped like Zuckerberg and Gates and all of them rather than nowadays, like the role models are like AOC. Um, and that's, I think, really powerful. But realizing that the legal profession and law school is very traditional in ways. And there are just some things that no one ever tells you. And without someone mentoring you along the way or telling you the secrets to this like tome, you really just will never figure it out yourself, um, barring some a circumstance that's extraordinary. So I thought, mm -hmm. no, go ahead, please. Oh yeah. So I, I was, I was thinking to myself, um, during all the protests, how could I help? So I started, I made a TikTok about like privacy things you can do at protests so that you're safe and, um, you can kind of like protect your own privacy, even while attending. 
uh, and trying to use my legal background. And I'm sure a lot of lawyers also thought about things like that, about how to use their legal background. I know some lawyers took on cases um, pro bono. Some people took on um, larger initiatives, um, lobbying. So I think being able to think about how your skills can be applied in non-traditional ways, even if it's not directly direct representation, is really helpful to helping the world change. I'm really glad you brought up the tech world because I've spent a ton of time in Silicon Valley and I've helped, I hope, tried to help lots of startups, including a lot of legal technology startups over the years. And I think that there's a little bit of an irony in that one of the ways that we can change the culture that we're in now is through using technology that even may be a little bit evil. And I know it's hard to say like what's good and what's not good, but this idea that big tech is going to do no evil, well, we realize, like you said, that that, that moment has passed. So it's a question of both empowering ourselves by leveraging the best technologies that are out there today. And as you've proven, I mean, TikTok influences a lot of people's lives. They go to TikTok to find influencers or people who have opinions to, you know, help them think through really complicated issues. And again, especially in the past year, that's a huge responsibility for people like you. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, I don't know about huge responsibility. Maybe I think I felt that responsibility despite everything, despite social media. Uh, and that's one of the things I went into law for really is I understood the power of technology. And I remember growing up uh, using peer-to-peer -peer, uh, sharing software and downloading just God knows what onto my computer. And this was also the era where there were a bunch of copyright suits filed um, by record labels against um, LimeWire, Kazaa, et cetera. And this entire ecosystem seemed so promising. The tech was so new, but the law was not properly harnessing or shepherding it towards the good. And instead it could just be used for whatever. And I think in general, tech previously did not really outpace the law as much. And the fact that tech just increases, increases, advances, advances at much faster rates than ever, it kind of means that the law has an obligation now to make sure that it keeps up with the tech in a way that it hasn't before. So I think it definitely can happen through various ways. There's like societal pressure, there's like norm setting. Um, and I think for me, I just wanted to understand the technology so then I can advise on it in my day-to-day -day job, which actually does involve advising on privacy issues for many companies, including tech companies. Which I think is great counsel for anybody, whether they're in law school yet or not, just considering a career in the law is to really get to know the technologies that exist today. But one thing I want to ask you about as we wrap up for today is, what do you think is going to come tomorrow? So like, you know, we see lawyers on Instagram using reels. We see hashtags like lawyer life and things like that. We see TikTok. Now Twitter is doing voice tweets. And I have very mixed opinions on that. Yesterday was actually my 12 year Twitter anniversary. So I'm really not sure. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm not sure. I think that was probably a waste of about 90,000 tweets. Nonetheless, um, what, what do you think is going to come next? Not necessarily what is that technology going to be, but what are 
things that we're going to be able to do in a couple of years that we can't do today. So for people who are 1Ls now, as they graduate and get into the legal world, how might the technology landscape change for them? If you have an opinion on that. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things, and I remember when I was interviewing for law firms, the rule by career services was turn off all your social media, private it all, like just pretend like it doesn't exist. And I think the thing that's going to change moving forward is that even as a law student, even as not even a law student, college student, you're going to be able to create your own brand and create your own story ahead of time, way before you even step into any employer's office before you even become a lawyer. And with that, you're able to have a greater say in where your career goes much earlier on. And it'll, I think it'll actually create for better matching between employers and employees um, as we kind of signal earlier and earlier, like what are the commitments that are important to us? What our brand is? Does that align with the firm's brand or the employer's brand? And I think that's really, really a good thing because one of the biggest issues that I have seen for uh, classmates my year has they just go into a workplace and they realize it's totally not for them. And I think being able to harness technology and tell your story ahead of time almost, you're able to ensure that that is not going to happen. And not only to ensure that it's a great fit in the beginning, but that there's a potential for growth. Maybe if you stay there long enough that you can help grow into some kind of leadership role because you know in the beginning that it's a really good foundational fit. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So let me end by asking you this question. Of all the TikToks that you've done, popularity or not, what's your favorite one? Do you have like one favorite TikTok that you've done? Oh man, okay, it probably is one where I had to write my own rap and I'm not a rapper by any means, uh, but I thought it was a really fun creative experiment to uh, write a rap to this tune. Uh, I think it, the beat was called like that one beat on TikTok and a ton of people did these fun raps to it. And I was like, okay, like, let me try. And the whole creative process of writing out the uh, the lyrics, I guess, and being able to rhyme them, it brought me back to the high school creative projects that I love so much and that, unfortunately, you do not have to write sonnets or haikus as a lawyer <laughs> as much, but I still kind of miss that, you know, it's like, I miss having to write a sonnet and remembering what iambic pentameter was. Oh my gosh, you just brought back a lot of memories by saying that, <laughs> exactly. That's great. Well, listen, I wish you and I'm sure all of our listeners wish you nothing but continued success both in your career and on social media. It's great that you were able to come on to the podcast. Um, so thanks very much, Cece, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Aaron, for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All bye. right. Bye.